0: This encore presentation of Mortification of Spin is sponsored by the new Blessings of the Faith series by PNR Publishing, available today. Visit prpbooks.com and hear more at the conclusion of today's podcast. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation.
1: Welcome to Modification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman. I am Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in beautiful Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here with my usual co-host, Todd Pruitt, Pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley. And we are privileged today to have a special guest coming on to talk about his, his latest book. I have huge respect for this guy. Every day at about three o'clock in the afternoon as I'm finishing <laughs> my teaching and the world is looking like a brighter, happier, <laughs> more positive place. Uh I get an email. With the latest list of of this gentleman's articles on it, and I I only have to read the titles to have my my sunny optimism immediately corrected and and brought back to a more realistic perspective. Uh, I'm very honored that uh, this gentleman uh, wrote the preface for my book, Uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He is, of course... uh, The the famous, infamous, notorious, (laughs) however you like to think of him, uh, journalist at the American Conservative, author of the best-selling and very provocative, Benedict Option, and now author of, it's not exactly a sequel, (laughs) but it covers similar territory and, and has some very helpful insights for Christians. His latest book, Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. He is, of course... Rod Dreher. Welcome to the program,
2: Rod. It's great to be here. And I have to say, though, Carl, that what, what you said about how my stuff is so doomy and gloomy, <laughs> it really is true. People people read it that way, and that's, that's not inaccurate. But at the same time, I'm not personally a doomy, gloomy uh, sort of guy. I'm actually ready to ready to take on the apocalypse as long as I have some gumbo in the pot and good friends around me. I'm, I'm like the hobbit when, uh, sitting in the shire waiting for for the end. There you are. We, we, we have
1: the,
2: I should have introduced the ever cheerful and optimistic Ron Frey on the
1: program today.
2: It's it's a, a really a good point that we can, maybe we can start with this. People, so many Christians, especially in America, tend to think that hope is the same thing as optimism. And it's really not. Mm. You know, an optimist is somebody who thinks everything is always going to work out for the best. No problem. Let's not worry about it. The facts say otherwise, especially the history of the 20th century and recent events. But hope, on the other hand, is the conviction uh, for us Christians, the conviction that uh, all things work. Uh, out for God's will. And that even suffering, if we unite our suffering in some way to the Lord, then he can use that for redemption. And so even if we don't live to see uh, the end to this, th- these terrible things that are coming on us, we know that if we suffer faithfully and bear witness to the Lord, come what may, that ultimately it will be used for the salvation of souls. So mm-hmm. that's that's the difference between hope and optimism. And I think to the extent that Christians confuse these, that if we think that to be hopeful, we have to be optimistic, then we're just setting ourselves up for a radical loss of faith. Mm-hmm.
1: That's a, uh, that's a good one, I think, particularly uh, apropos in the American context, where one of the things I loved about America when I first came here was it's, it's an optimistic country. It isn't Northern Europe, and that is certainly, I, th- I think, changing and is, is culturally a, a part of the difficulty of the, of the present moment. But going to your book, Rod, uh, it's, it's incisive, it's very practical. Um, you start with this chapter on this guy, Kolakovich. Is that how you pronounce the name? That's right, yeah. the prophet. Could you tell us who he was and, and why you chose him as the kind
2: of opening salvo sure. in, the,
1: in your thesis in Live Not By Lies?
2: Well, I had never heard of this priest, Father Tomislav Kolakovic, until I started researching the book. I found out about him when I went to Bratislava, the capital of Slovakia. Um Kolakovic was a Croatian Jesuit who was doing anti-Nazi work in 1943 in Croatia. He got a tip that the Gestapo was coming for him, so he slipped out of the country, went to Slovakia, his mother's homeland, adopted her last name Kolakovic, and began teaching at the Catholic University there. And what he said to the Catholic students was, "Listen, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is this country is going to be ruled by the communists, and they're going to come after the church as soon as they get power. We have to be ready for that. So what Kolakovich did was organize small prayer groups, uh, for groups for prayer and study, and spread them across the country. And they built a network and, uh, that would later become the, the backbone of the underground church. Some of the bishops of Slovakia criticized Kolakovich, saying, you're too alarmist, you know, don't, you're giving the laity too much power, things are not going to be as bad as all that. Kolakovich had studied the Soviet system because he had been, he had trained earlier to be a missionary to the Soviet Union, and he did not listen to the bishops. Well, sure enough, when the Iron Curtain fell, they expelled Kolokovic and they immediately came after the pastors and the priests. Because Kolakovich had had organized this network, all of his leaders, the lay leaders, went to prison. But when they got out of prison, they began to evangelize and they laid the groundwork for the survival of the church throughout the communist era. They were key in organizing the first demonstration in communist Czechoslovakia that led to the Velvet Revolution, which overturned communism. My idea in this book is that we are living in a 1943 moment. We all need, whether we're Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, whatever, we need to be like Father Kolakovich and not listen to the people saying, oh, you're being too too alarmist about this, but rather to start laying the groundwork right now for the resistance.
3: As we were chatting earlier, I, I mentioned, you know, I, I so far the reviews I've been reading have been very positive. I I, I think the book is dynamite not only in the uh, sense that it's just terrific, but but dynamite in, in the sense that it, it is explosive in, in the best way I think possible. Um, and, and as I was reading one review by a particular evangelical, um, you know, he said, ah, you know, it just just seems a little too negative. And my, my first thought was, I, I think I could be persuaded that Dreer is being too negative if it weren't for the 20th century. And we're not talking about ancient history here. We're talking about a matter of decades that we should be drawing on in terms of how to interpret our current moment. And I think that's one of the things that vexes me so much, is that we're not talking about something that happened 1,500 years ago. We're talking about events in the very recent past, events that, that there's lots of people still alive who lived through them. And yet we seem to have several generations of people that have no context whatsoever to understand what was going on in in, East, in much of Eastern Europe in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, what was happening in Cambodia in the 1960s and 70s, for instance, to even draw it even closer. Um, how, how would you, Rod, and, and this is a big question, but just how would you point to several things you're seeing in our streets today and, and in the classroom and in the culture today that you, that you believe uh, are directly relevant to some of these events you described
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, uh, from, from Eastern Europe in the last century?
2: Well, you know, the the reason I wrote this book, the, and I, I talk about this in the book itself, is I got a call in 2015, I think it was, from uh, a stranger, a physician, who said, look, my mother uh, was is an immigrant to this country. She spent six years in a communist prison in Czechoslovakia for her faith. And she's telling me now, son, the things I'm seeing happen in this country remind me of what I, I went through. And uh, that struck me as being alarmist. But when I started talking to people in America and also in Britain who had lived through communism, Soviet communism, who are still alive today, every single one of them says, yeah, that's what we're seeing, too. And they get angry that Americans won't see it. So when I ask them, well, what exactly are you saying? They say that the, first of all, is the absolute intolerance for any point of view that, that violates the progressive ideology. Uh, in fact, the woman who who uh, whose son contacted me first, the thing that was the springboard for her saying that was what happened in Indiana after the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The state back in 2015 tried to pass a state version of this federal law everybody exploded, and especially big business. This was the first time that major corporations had gotten involved at this level in the culture war. And it's just like, to to use a historical analogy, it was like when the United States came into World War II, it was over for the Axis eventually because of the power of the United States. Similarly in the culture war, when big business got involved on the side of LGBTs, it's over for us Christians because uh, they have so much power in the economy. And that's what happened in Indiana. Uh, the state legislature backed down, particularly uh, Memory's Pizza. I don't know if you guys remember that, but Memories Pizza was a little family-owned yes. evangelical pizza parlor in a little town. <laughs> a TV reporter went there and asked the evangelical father and his daughter who owned it, would you cater a gay wedding? What a stupid question for a pizza right. parlor in a little town. She was setting them up and they said, no, we'll serve gay customers, but we're not going to cater a gay wedding. Mm -hmm. Boom. This went nationwide. There were people all around the country calling for the death of this this family, calling for burning down the pizza parlor. That is the sort of thing that set off so many people who lived under communism. They said that sort of group Mm -hmm. mob action against ideological enemies of the people, so to speak, that is key. And uh, also, I I talk about this in the book, the way we have accepted so much surveillance technology into our lives, it's just breathtaking. Uh, I talked in Prague, uh, I was interviewing a woman, Camilla Bendova, she and her late husband were part of Vaclav Havel's circle and Charter 77, fighting the communists. Her late husband went to prison for four years for his dissident activity and they're Christians. Uh, But she's still alive. She's a widow. I was in her apartment and I noticed that she and her adult son had dumb phones. I said, you don't use smartphones. She goes, of course not. She said, if you had lived through what we had lived through, uh, uh, then you would not be willing to give over information to anybody because information is power. She pointed out uh, in her house scars on the wall where she and her husband had ripped out the wires that the communist government had used to spy on them after the fall of communism. And Camilla said, you know, I don't understand why so many people in the West are like this today. They think that all the data that's being taken off their smartphones, off their computers, that it's all innocent. They've done nothing wrong. They have nothing to worry about. If you've lived through what we've lived through, you know that information is power and they will ultimately use it against you. I'm sorry, I'm being sort of long-winded here, but this is the Mm -hmm. sort of thing that if the government had come in and told us that we will be surveilling your every move. Right. We will be putting technology on your television that will be able to read your face and transmit data about what you react to emotionally. We would know instantly this was Big Brother. But the fact right. that it's being done by big corporations and being packaged as consumer convenience we Americans are suckers for that. Mm. We're going to pay a price.
0: Mm.
2: It's
1: funny. It's uh, We uh, had a slightly, well, not slightly, had a very creepy uh, example of the surveillance recently in that we get these robocalls on the landline here. I'm a dinosaur. I have a cell phone and a landline. And these mm-hmm. robocalls will use my name. So obviously, they've, they've tracked the address, the landline, my name. My oldest son's fiance was visiting. The only thing that connects her to this address and this landline is the fact that she was on my property with her cell phone. Suddenly, we're getting calls on the landline, robo-calls, using her name. Yeah. That, was, that got my attention. You know, I'm used to being followed around on the internet. You kind of assume that. But when my landline suddenly gets mm-hmm. tied to somebody who has no actual connection to my landline, That was weird. That was weird.
2: You know, I call it soft totalitarianism in the book, and I, I distinguish that from the hard totalitarianism of the Soviet Union. You know, so many of us in the West who've been raised on Orwell in 1984, we think of totalitarianism as something that is going to be about maintaining control of the population by inflicting pain and terror. That's 1984.
1: Jack boot in the face for all eternity,
2: wasn't that how he described it? Exactly, (laughs) forever. Um, But this is gonna be softer. It's gonna be more like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And Carl, it's gonna be things like what you just talked about, how very softly and carefully they're monitoring all our moves. And they will be able to use little nudges like that to get us to do what they want us to do. Now, this is seems very benign right now, but if you look at China and what's happening in China with the so-called social credit system, where they have this elaborate electronic system that monitors everyone all the time, and uh, if you do things the government considers to be socially positive, well, you get a higher credit score, and that enables you to have more privileges. Your kids can go to better colleges, you can travel, you can get into the better restaurants, If you do things that the state considers to be negative, well, then you get a lower score and suddenly you can't get the good jobs anymore. Your kids can't go to college and on and on and on. The key thing is this is being done through advanced uh, artificial intelligence and electronics. So there doesn't need to be a secret policeman uh, watching all this in order to make you suffer. Now, this is the sort of thing that I think absolutely is going to come to the US to help the elites manage the population. And it doesn't have to come through the government, it can come through right. major corporations. And we're all sitting ducks because we can't imagine that can come here. I'll tell you that one thing you learn when you start doing this work is Solzhenitsyn said, uh, Sylvester Kirchmeri, he's a, an unknown uh, Slovak uh, uh, dissident, said in his memoir, Hannah Arendt said that the, that. People in the West think this can't happen here, but it can. We cannot be complacent that way. Hannah Arendt even said in her Origins of Totalitarianism in the early 50s, she said, whenever people start warning that it can't happen, that that it can happen here, you will always hear a liberal voice wheedling to say, oh, no, it won't, it won't, it won't. We got to wake up.
3: Right, it's it's interesting. Uh, I have these conversations quite frequently with people in in the church that I that I serve as pastor because in the co- corporate culture, um, or if they're employed by the by one of the universities in town, um, the pressure they are feeling the pressure increase a great deal. And again, it's not coming from the government; it's coming from corporations, from their employers, from the university, that sort of thing. And and it's, and it's it can be very subtle. It can be very subtle to the extent of asking the wrong question in a workshop or not offering a proper comment in a workshop. And they are now finding out that that stuff is noticed. And it is it's scary.
2: It. It's very scary. You know, uh, James Davison Hunter, the sociologist, mm-hmm. he wrote this really good book called To Change the World back in 2010. And he was talking about, I mean, he's an evangelical, or at least he may even be a reformed Protestant, Uh, but he's talking about cultural change. He said Christians have the wrong idea about how it happens. Cultural change from a sociological point of view always happens when the elites take on new ideas and it passes in elite networks and elite institutions. And that's what's happened here. I mean, when I went back for doing Live Not By Lies and studied the Russian Revolution, that's how it happened in Russia. The Marxists uh, had been really active in Russia for decades, but got no traction anywhere with the peasants or anybody else until around uh, the 1890s. There was a terrible famine in Russia. The Tsarist government couldn't handle it. And it, it was a real blow to the the prestige and the authority of the government. Well, that's when people started listening to the Marxists because they knew something was wrong, but they, they thought maybe maybe these guys have the answers. And as it moved over the next 20 years into the elites and the sort of radical ideas that previously had only been limited to academics and intellectual circles, as they became more normative within ordinary middle-class people in Russia, that's when the revolution really got going. And I think we're seeing the same thing here. So what I mean, the book is, it,
1: it, it, it isn't just a lament, though. That's the great thing about the book. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, whether you consider it to be terribly pessimistic, realistic, whatever, it, it's not just a lament. You have a number of positive proposals mm-hmm. about things that, that we should be doing and thinking about now in order to prepare ourselves for, for what may well be coming. Could you outline some of those uh, for us, Rod?
2: Recall, uh, You know, the first half of the book makes the case that we are in a pre-totalitarian situation now. But the second half is based heavily on interviews with Christian dissidents in various countries of the former Soviet bloc. I've talked to Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox, asking them, what can we do? What positive thing can we do? They gave me lots of advice. Uh, among them is that we need to start doing things to help to hold on to our cultural memory. Uh, the totalitarianism, whether it's of the right or the left, if it wants to gain power over people, it erases their memory. What we're seeing happen right now in the U.S. with the demonization of the founding fathers uh, and the, the, the smearing of all American history as nothing but one long story of exploitation and slavery, this is a way of, of destroying cultural memory. I talked to a man in Budapest, uh, a teacher of English, who said, you know, I... I lived under Nazism, I lived under communism, and I've lived under 30 years of capitalism. And nothing has been more effective at taking away the memory from us Hungarians of who we were and who we were as Christians than liberal capitalism. And this man is a capitalist, but he is aware of how the demonization of everything old and traditional has been key in building an audience for totalitarianism. So he got to fight that. One thing that I was really surprised by was learning about the power of small group fellowship. I I had not anticipated (laughs) that, but I I found myself in a secret room in Bratislava underneath the street where Samisdot, illegal publications, were printed for the Catholic Church, for the underground church during the 1980s. We had to go into a basement and then into a secret tunnel underneath the basement and came up in this room some evangelical brothers and sisters in Christ in the Netherlands had sent this little offset printer into Slovakia to help the underground Catholic church then. And uh, this was the kind of brotherhood that was that emerged out of this. And uh, one thing I, found, I was standing in that room talking to a man, a historian of the underground church who had been part of it as a teenager. And he said that small group fellowship was the thing that kept them all alive. They couldn't go to openly to churches, but when they were together, with fellow Christians who were willing to sacrifice their liberty, even their lives, for the sake of Christ, that gave them all such strength. I heard this story over and over and over again as I traveled. I heard about it in Moscow in the early, in the 70s, when there started to be a revival of the faith in Moscow. Uh, The only time these Christians felt any sense of relief in God's presence in a palpable way was when they would come together. Surrounded by KGB agents on the outside, but we have to build stronger fellowships. Finally, the, the most important chapter in the book is a chapter on suffering, on how we have to learn how to suffer well. It's the most important chapter because all of these dissidents told me this is the only thing that got them through, is being willing to recognize suffering as something they could offer for their own salvation and for the sake of honoring God. I talked to one man, at stories in the book, Alexander Ogorodnikov, a, a Russian. Uh, He was an early convert to Christianity, early in his life, in the 70s, and because he came from a famous communist family, they threw him in the worst prisons. And at one point, he had really lost his faith, or was on the verge of losing his faith from despair. He said, Lord, why did you put me here? An angel came to him one night and woke him up and showed him a vision of what he saw with his eyes of a man being led to his execution with his arms cuffed behind his back, led by two guards. Ogorodnikov could only see it from the rear. And he was able to understand that this was a man to whom he, Ogorodnikov, had witnessed in prison. And this man was going to his death, but he was going to be with the Lord because he had come to Christ through Ogorodnikov's witness. This kept happening night after night, and Ogorodnikov finally understood why the Lord had made him suffer because through his willingness to suffer for Christ, he had been able to bear witness to men who were damned beforehand, but they had met the Lord there in prison. They were going to be with him in paradise. This man, Ogorodnikov is like 70 years old. He was sitting in a luxury hotel in Moscow, telling me this story. Half of his face is paralyzed from the beatings he took, but tears were going down his cheeks, remembering this. And I get chills just thinking about it. These are The stories that we Christians in our free, wealthy country, we're gonna to have to live on these. Right,
3: right. Because that's the life of a dissident. Yeah. And, and and I would I would draw a parallel uh, between the language of, of a dissident with with language that the New Testament gives us as being strangers and aliens. Yeah. we're um, we're not in step with what is going on. Yeah.
2: No, and Ogorodnikov, even today, uh, after the fall of communism, he's out of step with the Russian government because though he's an Orthodox Christian he believes in religious liberty, and the right. Russian government today does not. I mean, I'm an Orthodox Christian myself, but what's going on in Russia is a scandal to about uh, other Christians. I, I spent about uh, two hours talking to an elderly Russian Baptist pastor, uh, and he's in the book, Yuri Sipko is his name, and uh, he knew I was an Orthodox Christian, but he told me at the end that he really wasn't prepared to be Listen to so sympathetically because that is not his experience in Russia with other Orthodox. I told him, I said, Look, you're my brother in Christ, and I prayed with him. You also have a great chapter on the family,
1: Rod. Maybe um, just a quick, uh, quick overview yes. of that for us. Yes. That was mm-hmm. a very, very important yes. part of the mm-hmm. argument, I thought.
2: Sure. Yeah, well, I profiled the Benda family in Prague. They were a Catholic family, uh, five or six kids, and they the family became the cell of resistance. They raised those children to know exactly who they were and what was going on in the world. They didn't try to shield the kids from, from the, the evil outside, but not only did they tell them what you must not do as Christians, we are Christians, we cannot compromise with this on the outside, but they also built up the moral imagination of the kids through reading. And I, I talked to Camilla and I said, look, you know, your husband was in prison for four years. You are a professor, but how did you manage to read to the kids? She said, well, I'd read to them every day for two hours because it was important. I said, what did you read? She said, I read them the classics. I read them really good fiction, good poetry. And we spent a lot of time on Tolkien. I said, Tolkien, that's really <laughs> interesting. Why Tolkien? She said, well, uh, because the experience of the the characters in Lord of the Rings, that mirrored so much of our experience, we knew that Mordor was real. So what I got out of that was that, you know, the home is always the first school for the the formation of the intellect and the souls and the hearts of our children, but the Benda children saw in their parents and the way their parents lived, the way that they needed to live to be faithful Christians and, and men and women of integrity. To this day, in the Czech Republic, which is the most atheist country in Western Europe, all of the Benders, the adult Benda children, and their children, are practicing churchgoers, and it started right there in the family.
3: That's really strong. I, the uh, now, now the um, the the phrase we knew that Mordor was real is going to be reverberating in my mind. I've got to fit that into a sermon now, so that's good. I appreciate that. But um, <laughs> our 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 guest has been Rod Dreer and and if. I know many of our listeners are familiar with his work. Um, we've had him on as a guest before. We, we, we've we talked about him before. And um, uh, you can read his work regularly in his columns uh, at the American Conservative, and he's always worth reading. He always challenges me to, to think about certain things. But uh, we want to really encourage you to uh, to get his new book, Live Not By Lies, Highly recommended. It's dynamite. And the the way I've described it to people is it will give you some very helpful lenses in interpreting our times right now. And uh, I I highly recommend you get it. And also if if you're tempted to think that Rod is just too uh, depressed and unhappy, he's not, as he emphasized before, he loves gumbo. I guarantee he loves puppy dogs. Um, And, uh, and, 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 and Rod, Rod has also written a variety of other books on various topics. One that's on my shelf that I recommend to folks is The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming from a few years ago, which gives you a a whole new kind of perspective on on Rod's life and his writing. And it's it's a wonderful, compassionate, warm, moving book. Um, But, you know, the rule is if if Rod writes it, get it. It's going to be worth reading. And uh, Rod, thanks for joining us today.
2: Oh, it's been Thanks, a pleasure. Man. You know, one of the big lessons I learned from this book is the importance of a true ecumenism, uh, an ecumenism of the trenches, not an ecumenism that denies the meaningful differences between mm-hmm. the religious confessions, but the kind of ecumenism that these dissidents found, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, in prison, because mm-hmm. all of them, they, they weren't thrown in prison for being Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox. They were thrown in prison for being followers of Jesus Christ. Right. And uh, that's the kind of brotherhood that I think it's absolutely vital for us to build across denominational lines, never to deny the, the importance of these true theological differences among us, mm-hmm. but to realize that we, if we, we either uh, stand together or we hang separately. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Well, folks, we're, we're so glad you joined us today. I, I know that you've been helped and encouraged by this uh, conversation. And until we get to speak with you again, thanks for joining Carl and I and our guests today. Rod Dreher. Have a wonderful day. Carl, why don't you introduce? Okay, um, uh, you might even drop the note that he has provided an introduction for your oh. new book. I mean, <laughs> which you know. I'm
2: very grateful, Rod. Absolutely. So much. Well, Absolutely, I mean, it's look. Y- you know, I've said this, and I'm not. It's no false flattery that this is the most important book that's going to appear this year for Christians, and it's going to become a perennial classic. Oh, I'm well, confident so. of that.
1: Mm. My wife is hoping to get maybe a holiday in Italy out of the royal. <laughs> <hope> <laughs>
0: September twenty-second. discover the exciting new Blessings of the Faith series from P&R Publishing, featuring Jason Halopoulos on Covenantal Baptism, David Strain on Expository Preaching, and Guy Richard on Persistent Prayer. Three of the most trusted and distinguished voices of the faith answer your questions about these important Reformed Church practices in a way that every layperson will understand. The new Blessings of the Faith series will be available September 22nd from PNR Publishing, bringing you books that promote biblical understanding and godly living, as summarized in the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. Visit prpbooks.com to learn more. prpbooks.com